Well, as we've said the last two weeks, we all need a nudge from time to time. In fact, every Sunday morning, I notice some of you need nudges. I won't say who, and I won't say who nudges whom, but everyone needs nudges occasionally. We can easily uh, fall asleep. We can easily grow complacent in everyday life. We can, uh, we can become indifferent because, uh, well, for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's because of what other people have done. We become indifferent. Well, if they're not going to take it seriously, I won't take it seriously. And all of a sudden, we're in this malaise, this, this spiritual malaise. We can allow the lowest common denominator to become enough for us, can't we? Yeah. What's, what's the least expected of us? Well, we'll just do that. We'll just, we'll just get by with that. And we need friends who will nudge us. And what we've seen over the last two weeks is that the Holy Spirit is the great nudger. The book of Hebrews is full of nudges, promptings, urging, exhortations for us to move on to, as we just read, holiness. As I said last week, I think, and I know the week before, that's why God saves us. Not that we go to heaven one day. That's, that's certainly a wonderful benefit. But he saves us that we might be holy. And as holy people, sanctified people, set apart people, that's what holy, sanctified, those are all uh, words in the same word group, so that we can worship him as he deserves to be worshipped. So... When we need those nudgings, we've seen a number of, number of responses here that the Lord gives us so that we, we don't go grow complacent, we don't grow indifferent, we don't settle for the lowest common denominator. And the first was we considered that we were to patiently remember who we are and whose we are. Remember who we are and whose we are. And then we saw also we're to patiently look to Christ and consider all that He is. And all that we are to him. And also we are to patiently count our blessings. And remember. Remember. As the, as the writer says here. In your struggle against sin in verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Everything we experience on this earth. Is but a momentary affliction compared to eternity. For those who were in the adult Sunday school class this morning, uh, Sinclair Ferguson dealt with that in some, some uh, comments. Our suffering is for our glory. We often get very narrowly focused and we think, oh, suffering, what's this, what's going on? Well, it's, and as Sinclair said, he takes our suffering and he shapes it and, he, and he's, he's using it to, to bring about, about our glory. In his presence. And those nudges to remember who you are and whose you are, to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and remember who he is, the found, founder and perfecter of our faith, to remember what he did for us, count our blessings, and then one last one, one last little nudge that he gives us in this passage, and that is before us today to patiently press on, rejoicing in your sonship. Patiently press on, rejoicing 
in your sonship. I know of no better illustration than the marvelous sermons. I wish they had been recorded. Sermons that John Lafayette Gerardo preached to the slaves in Charleston prior to 1861 on the doctrine of adoption. Can you imagine what that must have meant to those, those who were enslaved to hear that wonderful gospel message that we are sons of the Most High God. We have all the benefits. We have all the privileges of sons of God, even though we're slaves on this earth. First point this morning. God is not only a judge who declares you not guilty, but He is a Father who adopts you as sons. Now this is basic gospel. This is fundamental. You've heard this from this pulpit in the last seven years. Uh, I won't even venture to guess how many times. And prior to that with, with Dr. Rankin, prior to that with Dr. Hall, and prior to that... Betty and Maddie can tell me with whom. That's the gospel. God not only declares you not guilty because of what Christ has done, not because of what you've done, because what we've done deserves death, but but God has not only declared us not guilty, but He's also declared us sons, adopted with full privileges. In 2 Samuel 9... We have that beautiful story of Mephibosheth. Remember? He was lame in both feet. The author tells us more than once that point about Mephibosheth. Oh, did I tell you? He's lame in both feet. And that's the way he ends the story. You remember? After all that David does for him, oh, Mephibosheth, he was lame in both his feet. In other words, the point was he could do nothing for himself. He could do nothing of himself. He was a needy person. Mephibosheth was an enemy of the state. And in that sense, he was a man without a country. He was 20 some odd years old. And he didn't have a country. He was an enemy of the king. You say, well, I don't get it. How is a lame man an enemy of the king? Because he's the heir to the throne. And in that cultural context, just as it is in many places today, if you were the descendant of the previous king, dictator, you name it, president, prime minister, there was an expectation of heirship that you would succeed to the throne. So he was a natural enemy to David. But that's not where the story ends. In the same chapter, there was this powerful king, a man whose stated purpose was to rule with equity and justice. He was a man after God's own heart, according to the Scriptures, and that's King David. And David had covenanted to redeem the poor and the needy of his kingdom. And he had covenanted specifically to redeem Mephibosheth, to care for him, this enemy, this lame 
person, this needy person. You remember David had made a covenant with Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, that he would do this. Beautiful picture as we've seen in considering this passage in sermons before. Beautiful picture of God having covenanted with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save His people who were in Christ Jesus. And in the fullness of time, He did that. He continues saving us because of what Christ has done for us. And so David came and you remember he had Mephibosheth brought to him on a litter and Mephibosheth they put him down and he's sitting there and and he falls out on his face in deference to the king and King David's first words are do not be afraid that's good news to an enemy That's really good news to someone that's expecting to die because they're your enemy. So he says, Mephibosheth, yes, I'm Mephibosheth. And he says, you don't have any reason to be afraid, Mephibosheth. And you know how the story goes. There you see the beautiful doctrine of justification and reconciliation. He's been reconciled to the king, not because of anything he did, but because of what the king did. The king brought him to himself and the king declared him reconciled. You have nothing to be afraid of. But that's not where the story ends, is it? If you're familiar with the passage, if you remember the sermons preached on this in past years, the story continues. David says to Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you control over all of Saul's properties. In other words, Saul's, Jonathan's, Mephibosheth's, all those properties still intact. They're yours. You take care of them, Ziba. You produce off the, the lay of the land and Mephibosheth will have plenty. And then he says this, but Mephibosheth, you're going to come home with me. You're going to eat with me. And then later in the chapter he says, As one of my sons, you will eat at my table continually. See, David not only declared him not guilty, reconciled, you don't have anything to fear, but he also declared him adopted. You're my son. That's what the great king of heaven does for us. That's what we've seen already in the previous verses up in chapter 12, verse 2. We're to look to Jesus, the founder. There he provides the foundation for our salvation for which the Father declares us not guilty. He declares us reconciled. He declares us now to be justified. That's that theological term that we talk about, justification, Adoption, sanctification, glorification. It's a wonderful word. We have been justified. We have been declared just based on what Jesus did. But notice now how the writer of the Hebrews, or to the Hebrews rather, how he moves on very naturally 
in the gospel to say, oh, remember, you're not only reconciled, you're not only no longer guilty, you don't have any, any records in the court outstanding against you. Don't you remember that you're sons? You notice how he does this? And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now I want to suggest something to you. The way the question's worded here suggests that we sometimes forget that we're sons of God. That we're children. And we act, we act like we're not. And we have to be reminded from time to time. The Spirit of God and fellow believers need to encourage us. You're children of the living God. You're a son of the living God. Remember whose you are. That's where we started in this chapter. Remember whose we are. We're part of this cloud of witnesses. We've been, we've been redeemed by the living God, but we've also been adopted. That's part of our redemption, is that we've, we're now sons of the living God. God in heaven declares us not guilty because of what Jesus did. And then he steps out from behind the, the, big, the big legal bar where he sits as judge and he, he dons the, the, the posture of an affectionate father. And it's, all, it's almost like the picture is in the scriptures over and over that the, that, the, that the Lord just kneels down on his knees and gathers us in and hugs us. So that he might provide for us. Paul tells us in Romans 18 that part of that provision or what happens there in the adoption transaction when he declares us adopted. By the way, you know, in, in our context, if you want to adopt a child, you have to go through the legal process, right? It's a legal process. It's not a moral process. You can legally have a child and be immoral to them. Adoption is a legal process. God adopts us legally. He declares us His children, just like He justified us legally. We're children. And part of the benefits then, Paul says, is that we're heirs and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Sometimes I just sit and try to think about that. Is that not amazing? You know, we talk about grace and then we sing about grace and we sing amazing grace but sometimes we don't think about grace in such a way that makes it amazing but if you'll if you'll come to adoption and you think wait a minute I'm an heir with Jesus Christ Jesus Christ the eternal son of God Jesus Christ part of the eternal godhead we're his heirs and the bible says that everything belongs to him Does that mean everything is mine? Yes, in our relation to Christ. That's the reason that Jesus said, the meek shall inherit not a little strip of land in the Middle East, not your favorite state in the United States. Because I know people are very attached to their home states. But the earth... In other words, all of it. And all that is therein. 
That's who you are as a son of God. That you have that inheritance to look forward to. We're getting to enjoy some of it now, aren't we? But there's the not yet part we're going to enjoy eventually in the new heavens and the new earth. If the Father has forgiven you and declared you no longer guilty, then he has also adopted you and given you a new name. Now, for some of you, and I realize here, Mark Buckner and I have talked a little bit about this. You know, when we think about a father, for some people, that's not a very pleasant thought. So what I want to encourage you to do here is, is think, okay, men can sin and men can fall short. Men can come up empty. So when I think about God being my father, I want to think about God in terms of what the Bible says. Not, I don't want to let men define my God. I don't want a bad father defining the way I'm supposed to think about the heavenly father. See, this is, just to do a little excursus here, this is why God forbids the making of images. Because anything we would make would be something we think represents Him instead of representing God the way He wants to be represented and the way He's represented in the Holy Scriptures. So let's don't do the same thing. Let's don't make images when we're thinking about the fatherhood of God. Let's go to the Scriptures and say, wow, here's a father... Who loves. Notice what it says here in this text. Men, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But notice the contrast. He, God the Father, disciplines us for our good. Who see here? He's pure. He does everything right. He does everything perfect. His discipline will be excellent. God never has to come back and say, I'm sorry, I did that wrong. I disciplined you too hard. I disciplined you too lightly. I disciplined you when you didn't need disciplining. Dads, we've all had to do that. But our God doesn't have to. He's the perfect Father in heaven. So, He not only declares us not guilty, but he also adopts us as his sons. And that should be a wonderful, gentle, encouraging nudge for us. When we tend to feel this or that pressure of life, we can come back to that center point and say, but I am a son of the living God. By the grace of God, I've been adopted as his son with all the benefits and all the privileges. Second thing we'll see is our sonship is confirmed by the discipline we receive from the Father's loving hands. Our sonship is confirmed by the discipline. Notice what it says, verse 7. After he is quoted in verse 7b, or 5b and verse 6, he's quoted Proverbs 3 portion that we read earlier. He then says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. 
our sonship is confirmed by discipline. And discipline is something we're supposed to endure. Why? Why would anyone enjoy discipline? Well, this applies both to you children sitting here listening as you think about your mom and dad disciplining you. Remember what discipline means? Discipline means teaching, instructing, correcting, you know, that word discipleship, disciplining, discipline, all are the same root word, you know. Parents, when you're, when you're exercising discipline, spanking, correcting, nose in the corner of the room, whatever it may be, appropriate for the age and time, for the, for the, for the, for the offense, whatever it may be, that's to be a teaching moment. It's to be instructive. It's not just, it's not punishment. It will hurt sometimes. But it's intended to instruct. Discipline, disciplining, discipleship. Why should we look at it as something good that we should endure? You know, I know sometimes you may have been disciplined and you thought, I'm not ever going to let that happen again. And that's the wrong thought to have. Instead, we should receive it so that it promotes endurance and perseverance in us. Why? Because it proves that our parents love us. And so discipline from the Father's hand proves that He loves us. Did you notice what it says? For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, now hang on to the, the, the phrase in the middle. Let's skip that for a moment. If, if you're left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, you don't belong and you're not loved if you're not disciplined. The father on this earth that doesn't discipline his child doesn't love his child. They may think you're a great buddy and a good friend, but you're not a good father. And we're not here to be buddies and friends first and foremost, dads. We're here to be daddies and fathers to train up in the pathway to holiness our children. And that includes discipline. Notice what it says. Let's go back to that verse again. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, does that mean then everyone's a child of God? No. That's a liberal fantasy. He's saying here the context is, if you're a child of God, if you've been adopted as a son, then you will be disciplined. Now, here's the other side of that. If you've never experienced the discipline of the Lord's hand, the correction that the scriptures speak of, then you have to step back and say, well, then maybe I'm not his. It proves that he loves us when he disciplines us. Second reason... It is for discipline that you have to endure. Second reason we endure is because we're loved. Second, because it's designed, discipline that is, designed to draw us into the proper path. We should accept discipline from God's hand because it leads us in the proper path. It puts us on the right way of living. God wouldn't lead us off into the briar patch. He wants to keep us 
on the right path. Now, sometimes he uses that briar patch to teach us we don't want to be over there. But it's all designed to bring us back onto the path. Discipline, teaching, shaping, molding, all, all that we are. Where does God do this? Well, He does it for children in families, right? Where there is one man, one woman. He does it for Christians in the church, the household of God. Where there are elders and deacons and there are fellow saints who are encouraging you and building you up, challenging you, being willing to say, you know what, you were out of line there. Discipline also excites our perseverance. Discipline, just as in the family, dads, you know, sometimes Paul tells us that we're not to uh, we're not to provoke our children. We're also not to not to, to oppress them. Our discipline should be something that builds them up, and we've all failed at that point, dads. We just might as well confess it and repent of it and ask God forgiveness and ask our children forgiveness and, 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 and ask God for greater faith to trust Him to do it right the next time. God, God's discipline is not meant to stifle us. It's not meant to oppress us. It's meant to excite us. It's meant to push us forward. It's meant to produce in us greater perseverance. And ultimately, it's meant to produce in us holiness. Did you see that? I hope you didn't miss that. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. There's the purpose clause. Some of your Bible translations, ESV just says that. That's the purpose. If you're in the New American Standard, it says so that. So it's more clearly the purpose clause there. So that we may share his holiness. That's the purpose of discipline. That's the purpose of God's strong arm getting us sometimes and pulling us back where we need to be or sometimes letting us wander into the briar patch over there, getting covered with, with chiggers and ticks and, and, and then lovingly bringing us back, showing us the path. Those reminders, no, I don't want to do that over there anymore. That's not where, you know, this... The, Pilgrim's Progress, you know, Bunyan's Slough of Despond, the classic example. Don't want to do that. We want to pursue holiness. What is holiness? Perfection, completeness. And by the way, it's part of our union with Christ. Did you notice that? Share in His holiness. Discipline is a good thing in families. It's a good thing in the church. God does it for his people. So Hebrews is full of exhortations. Notice how that passage ends. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what discipline's for, to train us, to nudge us, to endure to the end. We're to persevere unto holiness because of who we are. We're to persevere acknowledging that we're His and He has loved us from eternity. He's adopted us as sons and He's treating us as sons. He's loving us as sons. Do you enjoy the voice of the Holy Spirit when He says in those still quiet moments, you're a son of God? It may sound like the Bible. In fact, it always will sound like the Bible. And it might sound like this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God, peacemakers, peacemakers, sons of God. Let's look to him who made peace for us so that we might be his sons and have all this. May we be encouraged by it today and challenged to live like his sons. Remember whose you are. You've been bought with a price. Father, thank you for this truth. And we ask now that you'd be pleased to help us wear the name proudly this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.